Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Karsten Knox, a writer and critic based in Halifax where he hosts two podcasts, Lends Me Your Ears with Stephen Cook and Flaw in the Iris from the blog of the same name. Karsten picked Truly Madly Deeply, Anthony Minghella's magnificent 1990 debut feature starring Juliet Stevenson as Nina, a Londoner still grieving the loss of her partner Jamie, but her paralysis is broken when he returns as a melancholy ghost in her flat right around the same time she meets Michael Maloney's Mark, who is both very nice and entirely alive. Pitched somewhere between a charming romantic comedy and a devastating study of loss and recovery, the film marked an arrival of an eccentric and wonderful talent, and one, and as it turns out, two, taken away from us far too soon. This is someone else's movie. I've been listening to your podcast for a while. I really enjoy it. Oh, thank um, you. And you have gotten some terrific talkers on. Uh, and I was like, okay, so, you know, if I'm going to do this, what would it be? And I'm kind of a genre guy. Like, uh, my sweet spot would be, you know, there's a few uh, uh, films that jumped to my head right away. Uh, Chinatown, but you've already had someone talk about Chinatown. <laughs> and um, uh, Nikita, Blade Runner. There's, there's just a number that I've seen a, a lot of times so that if I sat down, I could fill an hour worth of conversation yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that is basically what I ask people. It's yeah. Like, what are you enthusiastic enough about? What can you talk about yeah. for an hour? Um, this one I chose... Because it's a little less well-known, and I kind of dig being able to turn people on to stuff that they may not have seen, right. uh, it is harder to find. Uh, but the people who love this film really love it. Uh, I uh, went to high school in the UK, and so I have a nostalgia factor for films that were made around that era that make me... That remind me of London, sure. Uh, and I recognize London in them. So the the Mona Lisa's and Withnal and I's of that sort of period, you know, going through to the late '80s, early '90s. This film, even though a lot of it was shot in Bristol, it does capture London in a way, and location-wise, I really love watching and revisiting those sort of locations. Um, and also, the first time I saw it, it uh, it really impacted me. I saw it in New York City. Summer of 91, I was there interning at Marvel, which is a story I dined out on a lot. But uh, but I, I went to see a lot of movies that summer. It was the summer of Terminator 2, which was a huge deal. Sure. Uh, and then I, I went to a, uh, a little cinema, one screen, I think on 8th Street, one Sunday afternoon and saw this. And I was just floored by it. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, and I, I just really love it. I love it, and I've revisited it over the years again and again. And, and for me, uh, what one of the criteria for a good film is its rewatchability. Sure. You know, I mean, there's movies I've loved that I've only seen once, but most of the ones I really hold close to my heart are the ones I can go back to again and again and find other things in them that maybe I didn't see the first time or I've changed, my relationship with the story has changed or it affects me in a fresh way. And this one's always done that. Uh, and I think it's just a terrific story. It's so well done. It's so moving. Uh, and it's really hard to describe to people. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah. I, but what, what was your experience having seen it the first time? Um, well, I saw it in a, a screening room. I saw it at the Cineplex screening room in Toronto. There was a, 
some kind of a Cineplex Odeon Cinemas, the way back when they had their own distribution company before it was ruled an antitrust issue, uh, they had their own distribution company as well as their own chain of theaters, and so they would just latch on to smaller distributors and import them here as their sort of official go-to, and that gave them a stream of things, and we got crappy movies, and we got great movies, and you never knew with Cineplex release. If that logo came up, it's like, well, this could be good, who knows? Uh, or it could be Abraxas Guardian of the Universe, which once it was. Okay. <laughs> only, only once. Thank Christ. Um, but uh, with Truly Madly Deeply, there were two Alan Rickman films back to back. There was this and Close My Eyes. Okay, right, And they sure. were both opening in Toronto either the same week or a week within a week of each other. And the press screenings were one day apart. 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. I'm amazed you remember. I remember the experience of seeing those two together because... I hated Close My Eyes, and I, I just just hated it. Uh, and I loved Truly Madly Deeply, so they, they packaged together really beautifully in my mind, in my memory. Um, and Truly Madly Deeply was the one we saw first, and it just wrecked me. It just completely destroyed me, in the best possible way, because it is an epiphany kind of cry, but oh boy. Yeah, you just yeah. you were you were pulverized. It's an yeah. incredibly emotional ride. I tried to I tried to sell it to my friends on on the aspects of it that were like, oh, I saw this movie in New York, and uh, I came back to Toronto. I was living here at the time, and I was like, oh, it's it's really funny, but it's also kind of sad in places. But you're gonna love it. And I remember sitting down with them, and, and that the crying scene <laughs> arrives. Yeah. You know, the one, of course, I'm speaking of. The first one. The first with one. Julian Stevenson. Yeah. And it's like, it is one of the great scenes of just emotional. She's let's go in a way that, uh, that you don't see a lot of actors do because it's, I mean, she's ugly crying, yeah. you know? And she's snotty, and she's angry, and she goes through this whole sort of uh, collection of, of, of emotions. And... Uh, I remember one of my friends going, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to, I don't want to see this. And, you know, I think they they were hoping for something lighter and it wasn't that. And mm. I said, just give it a little a chance. And and they were won over by it uh, when we watched it. We watched it at home one time. But, but yeah, it, it, I remember, I've, I've seen the, the director's commentary and Anthony Mangella talks about how he thought he was making a romantic comedy. Right. And you can see the bones of it. And especially in that sort of British romantic comedy tradition that Richard Curtis was, has been so good at, wherein you've got the central pair, but then you have this colorful collection of supporting characters around, and each of them has like a fully formed life and persona within the film that if you, if the film decided to, it could make the whole movie be about those other characters because sure, they're yeah. so well drawn they're so well cast they all have their own stuff going on and I think that's what I, I love about it but he said that he realized he wasn't making a romantic comedy because of Juliet Stevenson's performance she was bringing a kind of level of emotion to it that that took it in a whole new direction and I think maybe yeah I mean that's part of the reason I love the film is that it's it's Mengele's first feature, which he made clearly uh, not much money, like yeah. it doesn't look like much, but uh, I think partly it's his his uh, uh, inexperience that makes the film so wonderful. Like you can tell he's a great storyteller. The script is really good. Uh, it's he can deal characters talking to each other. Like he worked in. He worked as a playwright for a long time. He worked with Jim Henson Company. He, he was involved writing uh, Inspector Morse, this popular British TV series. So he had all those chops. But, uh, you know, in, in working with this, sort of matching this sort of 
fantasy element with this reality element, you just feel like he's rolling the dice and letting his performer sort of take the story where it needs to go. And and that's what's so so wonderful about it is that it. I, I spend time writing about film, and I I. Uh, congratulate filmmakers when they are able to main, maintain a tone, like a uniform tone from the beginning to the end. And I'm looking for that, like a mastery of tone, and an ability to sustain it through all these ups and downs. Whereas this film goes up and down and backwards and forwards, you're crying, you're laughing, but it's still so wonderful. It's, it's like the thing that I would criticize other filmmakers doing, I, I love about this film. I love how it's all over the place. But it's controlled, right? Like yeah. it steers into and out of its own skids. Yes, so, absolutely. That yeah. was the thing that struck me watching it is that, yeah, I mean, there's the there's the insanity of the premise, mm-hmm. which is dealt with in a kitchen sink Mike Lee sort of reality where totally. everything is just a cold water flat misery. Yeah. Uh, and you have this profound feeling running through it and this this incredible variation inside of Rickman's performance and then you have what Stevenson's doing and she is an open wound she's just this raw nerve coming back to life and then shutting down and coming back and shutting down and then right in the middle of it yeah you have Michael Maloney who's blundered into this story from somewhere else entirely almost from another movie like yeah. he's, he's a magician we don't really I mean it's something I guess he's a hobbyist to do that but uh, yeah, and and then and then you would write him off if you met him on the street. Yes, uh, but somehow <laughs> yeah. the film, by yeah. the time he shows up, the film has allowed for his existence. Yes, and the world is big enough to to handle it. And the the other thing too that that struck me tonally is the afterlife material, all of it, literally everything to do with the ghosts and the revenants or whatever you want to call them. There are no special effects, not no. one. There is. A, a quiet acceptance and a shuffling nature of all of it. The idea that they're back, that they're not particularly happy about it, that the dead are moany and complainy and whiny, and that this is what it would actually be like to have your existence invaded by some other presence. And uh, I got to talk to Miguel about it a couple of times. I, I interviewed him for Cold Mountain and, and Ripley uh, when they came through Toronto. And the, f- the first 20 minutes of our Ripley interview were just tell me about Truly Madly Deeply. Um, That's probably what I would have done. He was, yeah. Oh, he was lovely. He was such a lovely man. I can't believe he's gone. I can't believe Rickman's gone. Um, and we'll get to that. Sure. Just watching the movie now is a very different experience. Uh, but I, I did say, you know, like, how did you know you could do this? When did you understand that this was even possible? Um, strategically, technically, from a production, but how did you convince, like my, the, the question that most interests me of a film like this is how the hell did you talk people into paying for it? How right. did you get this made? And he just said, we didn't have any money. This is the, literally the only way to do it is to take it seriously, play it straight and just assume people will understand what you're doing. And I think once they got on set, yeah, they could do any, he could do anything. He realized he had actors who were capable of going big, going small, doing literally whatever was asked of them. And it's just, yeah, oh, it's so powerful. It is. It, it is so powerful. And the setup of the first, I don't think Rickman shows up for the first half hour. So you've got this time spent with this woman who's grieving. And, uh, and you've got, you see the sort of satellite of these characters around her in her life. And she works at a, a language agency. And there's these elements of the story about the, the uh, immigrant experience in yep, London. Yep. Which, uh, which I think is real, brings a lot of interesting flavor to it. Uh, and it's less, 
you know, and it, it's just, and yeah, and it, it just about her life, and it's fascinating. And then, uh, you know, uh, Jamie, Alan Rickman character, his character returns, and there's a wonderful moment where she, they playing music, the uh, Bach, I guess, and uh, and he reappears, and then it then it becomes a lighter, more fun. Then it becomes a, the two of them, almost like a screwball comedy, a little bit. Like yeah. they they're very playful with each other, uh, and uh, and there's a lot of great things in the movie that um, are just sort of, again, thrown in to help build the character. Uh, there's, there, there's like a Pablo Neruda poem at one point. There's, there's a lot of music. There's Joni Mitchell and the Walker Brothers. There's that yeah, scene where the they sing the, the sun doesn't shine anymore. And I think, like, and it's so lovely and, and so fun. And, uh, and it's, I, that's maybe one of my favorite scenes where they sing that, that song. But there's other music in it as well. Uh, and and I love it. I'm jumping around here a little bit, but the yeah, the, the the ghosts are all cineasts. They're all film fans. I mean, and they they watch Brief Encounter at one point, yeah. and then there's that that my one of my favorite lines: Five easy pieces or Fitzcarraldo, yeah. which is such a wonderful. <laughs> they're, they're, I I always assumed that the joke is partially that they can't leave you know they can't go out yeah that seems to be established Mm -hmm. but that they have nothing to do but watch all her videos in alphabetical order is just such a wonderful wonderful button on that whole concept and yeah I just I asked him about that and he said he literally had a list of movies that was alphabetical and when he was looking for the joke he wanted two that fit together right but um, it's so utterly human and recognizable Mm -hmm. and the, the thing that it gets about love about relationships, about connection, all of it is so... It's the thing that romantic comedies never do, which is that it, a really powerful relationship, a really strong bond will let you be goofy in front of the other person and silly in a way that most movies aren't comfortable with and mm-hmm. most audiences aren't comfortable with. And when you see that kind of intimacy, it's squirmy, yeah. uh, unless you get it right. And, yeah. and Stevenson and Rickman just... I don't know how they did it. I mean, they figured it out and yeah. then they inhabit it so fully that you can't help but, you know, of course that you'd want to sing with them. And that's yes. what talented people do when they're together, when they're musically inclined and you can show off to your partner, this is what that feels like. And we get the, the, the rush of melancholy that is their relationship and that's part of the whole larger game plan of the film. But, oh, I could live in that scene. Like, yeah. just, just stay there. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and of course, that's the whole point, right? He's, He's playing the game that that Jamie is playing. The film is doing the thing that Jamie is doing. Spoilers uh, for people who haven't seen Truly Madly Deeply. Also, if you haven't seen Truly Madly Deeply, you're terrible and dead inside. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, go stop listening and go watch it and then come back. It's generally assumed with this podcast that you should know what we're talking about. But yeah, this is... This is one of those films that, yes, if a friend of yours has tried to force you to watch this, that is a good friend. Yes, uh, yes, and you absolutely. Should, and you should do that because it is wonderful. And it's playing the long game of slowly getting us to understand the same thing that she needs to understand, which is that the relationship ended for a reason. And, well, it didn't. They were together when he died. But the relationship wasn't as perfect as she remembers. And there are reasons for that being pushed back at her that are absolutely devastating Mm -hmm. just you know you go out on a high but it's a sad good it's a good cry yeah and that's I think that's the thing (laughs) I keep coming back to about this and and the finest films of you know that explore human relationships do this 
in that it's never just one thing. It's always a mixed emotion. Uh, and yeah, and I, it took me, I don't know, four or five viewings of it to realize that, um, that Jamie's plan was there all along. He yeah. didn't just come back to spend time with her and then become kind of, uh, a pain in the ass. He, he was, he had, he has a mission mm. and, uh, and I, I wasn't entirely sure of that until, yeah, I, I started to pick it up the more I saw it. Uh, and, and I think what you're talking about, this connection between those two performers, uh, I actually saw an interview with Juliet Stevenson, I think for the BBC after Alan Rickman died. Mm. And they called her and asked her to come on to talk about uh, working with him. And she said that they had been friends in the London theatre community. Uh, for a number of years, and so they had a sort of shorthand that helped with that performance, especially, and uh, uh, and that yeah, the, just a familiarity that was, and she she spoke about his generosity and about how he was he was so attractive to be around, uh, and yeah, and so preparing for talking to you, I I it's the first time I've seen the film since since he's died. Uh, and you're right, it, it is it is different. Yeah. I haven't actually been able to watch it since Minghella died. Um, wow. Okay. I, I mean, I will. I want mm-hmm. to. Uh, but it lives in my head. I've, I've seen it enough times, and I, I, I know it well enough that I can do this. But I thought about it. I, you know, we've, we've set this date a week ago, and, well, maybe tomorrow. And I just couldn't do it. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not ready. And it's weird, because I've watched Rickman and other stuff since. Right. But this is the one where... Uh, when he when Jamie leaves, he's gone, right? And that's yeah. that's not something I'm ready for. Yet. And yeah, I never met him. I never interviewed him. Kind of guts me. Mm-hmm. Um, his death came as such a shock and such a it is such a devastating loss on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And as, simply as someone who you know just appreciates his work and and has been like kind of half in love with his on screen presence since Die Hard. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not ready to watch him be dead in a movie yet. It's yeah. really weird. I'm a no, grown I, man. I, I, <laughs> no, I understand. Like, it's been a year and a half almost. Yeah, no, but, I, I, but I understand. Yeah. Sure. Sure, it's, uh, uh, I still it, remember really how tough. shocking it was. I was in a, Kate and I were in a, a departure lounge at Porter. We were going to New York in the last, middle of January, whenever, whatever the news broke. It was a Thursday morning, I guess. And I had to write the obit before we could take off, like before the plane departed i was rushing to finish the obit so we could have something posted and it's just i don't remember that i just remember what it felt like and it felt awful and i yeah this is the movie that i this is the movie that i was writing about the most i'm trying to point people to and even when Mingella died it didn't feel as i mean that probably did because i couldn't watch i haven't watched this film in nine years mm-hmm. yeah because he died is that right yeah, it was 2008. Yes, because we think. we were both at the British, at the London Film Festival, the BFI Film Festival in 2007. I was there on the jury. And we had passingly recognized each other in the hall a few times and said hi, but I was rushing the jury and he was rushing, he was running the festival, he was the director that year. But we didn't interact very much at all. Uh, we were both at the party that night because my jury had given the prize to... Um, to Joanna Hogg's Unrelated, which is an excellent, excellent film. And he liked it. I knew that. He, it was like word came down that he was very impressed with our choice, uh, which was sort of sweet. 
And we sort of nodded at each other across the, the floor at this thing, but that was it. That was my total contact with him. And then just a few months later, he was gone. And I definitely haven't watched the movie since then. And yeah, now it's even worse. But I can recall almost any scene. It's, mm-hmm. it's so vivid, and I watched it enough times. Yeah, yeah. And there isn't... Maybe this is a factor of uh, his, his brilliance as a writer or, uh, or just the, the budget, but it doesn't feel like there's any, anything wasted in there. Mm. Uh, and this is also something which goes against, I think, common wisdom. You know, there's, a, he, there's scenes where uh, Nina is, uh, the Juliet Stevenson character, is spending time with her sister and her nephew, who almost poisons himself at one point because he's, he's eating something and there's rat poison in the apartment. And, and, uh, and you learn all about the sister and then she wants to borrow Jamie's cello. And that's a no-go for mm-hmm. her. Uh, and and it's like stuff that might have been cut out, but it's just so charming because you get a, a broader sense of her life as because of these the support, which, uh, which I, I love. I love all of it. I love Titus, the Polish neighbor who falls in love with her and then later falls in love with Mara, her, the, the, the woman who... Uh, who Nina is teaching how to speak English, mm-hmm. and uh, and and the whole business of life, and I mean it, it it serves up some pretty heavy themes with with just a delightfully soft touch, uh, and yeah yeah I, I understand what you're meaning about the the not necessarily being cool with going back to it because of its devastating effect. The well, I want to, but it's like one of those things where it's like, well, you think you cried before. Yeah, 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 and and that the ending is is so well done. Yeah, it's exquisite. It really is. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, just that that was that was the moment watching it the second time in theater um, with an audience as opposed to a press audience where things were. You know, it's a thirty seat screening room and things are pretty calm and muted. And we're crying, but we're crying politely. Mm-hmm. Uh, watching it the second time and once the it's not the moment you think it would be. It's the moment when it lands. It's the moment when the other ghosts start to pat Jamie on the back and congratulate him for what he's done. Yeah. You you heard the room shifting slowly from to huh, huh, just this hutching, these these ratcheting like a child has fallen down kind of crying. Mm-hmm. This huge mm-hmm. fist in the chest of emotion that just wouldn't people were being like they're reacting like they've been punched. Yeah. And um it's incredible. But that's such a virtuoso moment. It's like the grace note uh, that lands even harder because of the lived experience of, of Nina. Yeah, we need to see the world that she's retreated from in order for us to understand why Jamie would want to push her away and into it. But, oh, Christ, yeah. I, that's, yeah. I can't do that. I can't, watch, <laughs> I can't watch that again. I need a moment now. <laughs> yeah, totally understandable. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and I like that ostensibly it's about grieving it's about trying to get over loss hmm. but it's also could it's also about you know about relationships that not all relationships even the good ones aren't all going to work out sure you're going to have to be able to manage the feelings that come when they don't whether it is you deciding that it's not working out or or your partner or whomever and your friends maybe you you know people come in and out of your life for a lot of different reasons and uh and finding a space inside yourself and a hope that, oh, okay, well, it, it, it might be okay. Or if it's not the same, at least it's, there is some, some positives, like a positive grace note 
that yeah. is served up there just to the end, just perfectly in a way that, uh, oh yeah. And, and the, and the, the, the sort of double whammy of, uh, of Mark, um, Mike Maloney's, uh, group that he teaches his day job waving through the window. Right. And then a couple of scenes later, all the ghosts waving. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's just perfect. Yeah. I don't even know like what that, it, it, that strikes me. I, it deeks past all my critical faculties to just like, <laughs> Just like, oh yeah, that's that's right. That's that's that totally works on all levels, and I can't even explain why. Yeah, it's just it's such a simple rhyming image, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's the kind of thing that you can do with dialogue on stage and get away with, but in cinema, you have the opportunity to shoot a frame that echoes another frame and and click into the the reptile brain of the audience. That you, it's pattern recognition, right? Yeah. You just like, oh, I get that, and then you realize what it means, and just again, fist in the chest. It's, yeah. Uh, he was such a natural. He was such a natural filmmaker, and and his escalation immediately into you know the English Patient, yeah, which which he handled as best as anyone could have. I mean, yeah. given that you can only really adapt a third of that book into mm-hmm. a cinema experience, he picked the right third, I think. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and we we did have a really great conversation um, about that as well at one point. I think that was when Cold Mountain came through. But we talked about how no one understands that the uh, he he was. He was stunned, and I believe him. Uh, he said that he was stunned that it was uh, that it won Best Picture, and that that it became an Oscar juggernaut because he thought he was making this really intimate epic that is a criticism of the selfishness of love because all the things Almasi does are done out of spite. You know, he betrays everyone to the Nazis all because he was pulled away from this dying woman who died alone weeks before he got back to her, and. Mingella said, you know, you, you sort of compress time because you're racing towards the ending, but this is an act of spite and revenge, and, and he's not a good person. And he said that everybody uh, during the um, the run-up to the Oscars said, oh, it's such a beautiful movie, and it's a story of love, and it's like, well, okay. <laughs> and he, was, he said he was too polite to contradict them, but we <laughs> talked about it at length, and he was just so surprised that it became the new Lawrence of Arabia. It was, you know, this new epic that was supposed to launch a new level of epic storytelling that didn't quite happen either. But what it is, is a really good movie and a really interesting exploration of those relationships. And and it does justice to Andachi's book in a completely different way. It finds a different sort of poetry. And then I think after that, Ripley and, and Cold Mountain, especially in Breaking and Entering, were... They're not bad. None of them mm-hmm. is bad, but they're not quite... I think Ripley is the movie he wanted to make. I'm not sure about the other two. It right. feels like he's trying to do the thing that he wants, but he's being forced to work on a scale and operating on a scale that isn't conducive to what he really wants to do. Yeah. Ripley's strengths are conversations between two or three people at most, right? It's yeah. it's beautiful to look at, but it's not an epic. Yeah, I think that's kind of what his... If I think about my favorite moments in all of his films, it's that. It's that his ability to believably and you'd think oh well that's a simple thing how many people can do that well no yeah. not a lot of people actually can do that well. trickier than it sounds yeah getting two people to talk together in a way that feels natural but actually conveys a huge amount of information if need be i went back and watched mr wonderful which was a film he made after oh god i totally you know what while we were talking while i was talking just then i was like am i missing one yeah it's annabella (laughs) siora and matt dillon right yeah yeah yeah. and he i mean he was a i think a director for hire it's like his first hollywood picture yeah it was Um, and it's a fine romantic comedy but it has touches of like some dramatic stuff going on there that a lot of romantic comedies would just do away with because it it complicates the the direct through line of you know 
obstacle that has to be overcome so that the couple can be together. And what I like about it is it's never obvious until the last few moments where it's going to go. It's not it's not uh, signposted the way that some romantic comedies are, where you can tell within the first five or ten minutes who's going to end up with whom. Right. And I really like that about it. Um, yeah, it's it's a charming charming Hollywood movie. It has some of the stylistic flourishes of like early '90s, late '80s with like the music. Uh, but yeah, then he went on to do this. The English patient, I think he became known as this filmmaker, you know, literary filmmaker, adapting these works of fiction. And, yeah, uh, sure. and you know, and he clearly was really good at that. But he didn't do too many of them before Before he did. I also watched Breaking and Entering just because it's kind of the signposts of his career. Yeah. He goes back to London. He makes this much more intimate story that's also about the immigrant experience yep. and also about sort of people's lives colliding in an interesting way with a lot of London locations and that in the, the city being a character. Uh, and yeah, it doesn't, it, I, I'd seen it, this, seeing it again was maybe the second time I'd seen it and it doesn't quite hold together, but I kind of see what he's trying to do. And I admire the attempt if, even though I'm like, and, and of course his casting, he, he could get Robin Wright you know, and uh, yeah, well, like Vera Farmiga shows up for that one scene. Yeah, yeah, one or two scenes. She's she's yeah, she's a prostitute who who's with a with a thick East Russian, uh, European and Serbian yeah. accent, and she gets in the car and smokes a cigarette, and uh, yeah, like clearly he can he cast well, but uh, but there's a heavy handedness a little bit to some of the the symbolism in it that feels like it's like you didn't have to push so hard on these buttons. I think you could have. Could have been a little lighter with it, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, I I still really admire what he was able to do with his time, and he definitely took time to make his films. I think he might have been better known in some ways as a producer. I mean, he produced a lot of yeah. films too, uh, and clearly he was beloved in Hollywood because every time I hear hear about someone who interviewed him or t spoke to him like yourself, oh, just, everyone says great things. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody has a bad Anthony Minghella story. <laughs> yeah. Was, and there are probably a couple of actors who didn't get parts who blame him or something. But yeah. Uh, no, he was lovely. He and he and Sidney Pollack were, and they worked together quite sure, a bit. Sure, yeah. Uh, they were two of the, they were sort of these, these humanistic filmmakers who somehow ended up making giant movies. I think maybe mm -hmm. even against their will. Yeah. In a weird way. And found a, an outlet to cope in a different way. Pollock became an actor and Minghella became a producer. And um, he, I mean, they, they Minghella specifically, because he was in that Miramax whirlwind where they just kept putting him on things. Right. And, you know, you use this creative actors that we have under contract for four pictures, you get some of them. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of feel that in Breaking and Entering a little more, in Cold Mountain especially. Right. But he still made the movies he wanted to make. I just... Yeah, I think he would have been, I think you're right, I think he would have been happier making smaller films. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, this is a little bit off the, the, the path, but uh, but it, I was reminded recently watching uh, uh, The Handmaid's Tale, which oh. was recently shot here, that his son is an actor who's doing quite well now. Max. Max, yes. uh, who plays the, the I, you know, uh, character in, in that show and, and uh, was in Social Network. Yeah, um, that's the, the one I always try to fixate on yes because he's he's such a, a curious screen presence i haven't seen the handmaid's tale yet and i'm okay. a little nervous about it frankly uh, <laughs> just because again like this came up in the Atlanta harkin episode yeah i'm sure it's great but right now uh, 
Yeah, it's scary. It's, it's a it's a horror story. It's basically. timely as yeah, but, but yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's just like right now. I think I'd really rather go watch somebody punch somebody else. With Fair a, enough. With a happy positive ending. I can totally. But I'll I can get, totally relate. To I'll that. get yeah. to it. Um, but, but yeah, but sorry, go ahead. No, no, please. You're going to say about um, yeah, just that I think he's a talent, and I I see a little bit of him from his you know his dad in his face, and and uh, you know that's always nice to see uh, because yeah, Anthony Mangella died unexpectedly and quite young mm-hmm. you know and i it's 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 a real shame uh but yeah his work is is terrific um you know to go back to truly madly deeply uh and thinking about my favorite scenes in that film and there are so many good ones but the, the hopping along the south bank <sighs> of london has got i've got to mention that because yeah. uh yeah uh, mark uh the michael maloney character gets to have the shortest date in the world with who he's with Nina, who he's been really interested in, and he's actually very upfront about it. You know, his group wants to know: is she part of his tree, his branches? You know, in his life, and uh, and then he he basically just says, "Okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna hop, and I'm between here and there. I'm gonna tell you about my life." And it's so funny. It's like a, it's like a a rapid fire stand up comedian has just you know just like a fire hose is of information and then he forces her to do it as she's carrying which becomes kind of a a signature of her whole look this Europa bag which if I'm remembering correctly I think Europa was a uh, like a grocery store chain in the UK Mm -hmm. and she carries a lot of stuff just in a plastic bag (laughs) I don't know what she doesn't have a purse or it's just like a bag and she's hopping along with that and the flowers he's given her as she tries to replicate what you know what she tries to replicate what he's just done, right. and uh, it's just so wonderful. It's so it's a laugh out loud moment that uh, that really takes away all that seriousness that uh, that we've been dealing with through the film, and uh, and again, just a total charmer. Yeah, and something that also in a really strange way does sort of it, it sets him up as a possible successor. Yeah, right? because Jamie was an artist, and he's an artist in his own strange way. And right. He's quick on his feet. He's he's eccentric enough, but more to the point, he's worthy of her. That's the first glimmer, I think, where we can see that there is the possibility of them actually working together. Yeah. And also, in some place in the back of my mind, I am convinced Minghella did that once. <laughs> just it just feel you, you if you tried to write it, it wouldn't be plausible mm-hmm. if you know that's your second draft fix for something that you can't solve and then you throw it out because no no one will do that right he did it right. someone did it either he did it or a friend did it or uh it just it feels so completely um credible yes in the moment yeah even because, though it shouldn't yeah. because everybody around them should be running in, in terror <laughs> and nina should be running in terror this man is clearly insane yeah but maybe not and maybe it's a good kind of good yeah thing. well she comes to the moment uh, really super apologetic because not only is she really late, but she can't stay. That's right. And so I feel sort of like Mark is saying, well, okay, this might be a real leap and this could scare her away, but she wants to accommodate me to some degree uh, and I don't want this to be... He's like, he's seeing already that it's it's awkward. It's just awkward. Like the first couple of moments is just super awkward and he's just like no okay this is this is the 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 best icebreaker i can think of yeah. and it's, it's, it's an audition piece yeah right i mean he's yeah. doing it to show her what he can do totally yeah and it's the best thing i've 
yeah, best thing I could even imagine. It's so wonderful. And yeah, as, as a result, we get to know him as well uh, in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it's something. It's something special. Uh, and um, yeah, and Rickman, Rickman, I don't know how many other performances of his you might point people to. Obviously, the first two that made him a, a hot property in Hollywood, Die Hard and Robin Hood, where he played villains. Yeah. Kind of the, the quintessential Brit going to Hollywood to be a, a mustache-twirling villain, you yeah. know, with accents and the whole business. Uh, um, if you're going to do it, that's yeah, the way. that's and the way. I, I still maintain, I use this all the time, that if Die Hard had ended with Hans Gruber shooting John McClane in the head and getting away, we would be fine with that. Because <laughs> yeah. both of them earn their victory. Right. And we are just as much, the film is just as much impressed with him as it is with McClane. Yeah. And it's only because this is a classic Hollywood alignment that, you know, the good guy has to win. But, oh, 10 years earlier, who could say? <laughs> and, and Rickman is so great. And, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, no one blames him. No. <laughs> Nobody comes out of that movie thinking, oh, that was Rickman's fault. That was, That's right. That was a terrible idea and it should never have happened. Um, so here's the other thing. I never ask for autographs. I'm not that guy. <laughs> but when I, um, when Minghella came through for Cold Mountain, uh, I had already interviewed him. We had a really great conversation. The first time I felt comfortable enough to do it, so I asked him, and I will, I will post this on the, the website or the Twitter account or something, but I actually got him to sign it, not for me, but for Kate, because we'd just gotten engaged. And he was incredibly gracious. And more to the point, the film is as important to her as it was to me. We you know, saw it a decade before we met. Uh-huh. But he was so kind, you know, sweet enough to do that. And now just, again, it's one of those things that just hurts to look at, because he would be gone in five years. Wow. So this is the screenplay. The screenplay. I had him sign the screenplay. Right. It's a little published, little baby book of the screenplay. Lovely. It really is, and it's uh, it's uh, printed here. It says for Juliet Stevenson, who uh, must have been a big inspiration for. Mm-hmm. Well, they were very good friends beforehand. He yeah. wrote it for her, and that's why I think it's a little disingenuous that he said he thought he was making a romantic comedy because if he had her in mind, he knew what he'd get. <laughs> he knew what he'd get. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I I can't uh, argue with that. Yeah. Uh, but maybe she, that's how you sell it too to people to to say like this movie is is lovely. It's not going to hurt you. Because <laughs> yeah. if you talk about, you know, if you go into interviews by saying, well, it's a devastating emotional experience, which it is, yes. you're not going to get a lot of people turning out for the, the happy movie. Well, this is what I was saying earlier about having to try to tell my friends about this great movie mm-hmm. I saw in New York. And, and yeah, I downplayed some of that. But yeah, the first viewing, I, I got the joy in it, too. So I, I felt like the balance was pretty even. Maybe in subsequent viewings, it tends... it it tends to the melancholy more. Sure. Well, you know where it's going, right? Yeah. I mean, you know that once you know the ultimate plan, yeah. it's hard not to feel it right mm-hmm. away. I mean, my second viewing was, I was sort of sniffling right along with Nina in the very first right. scene, and then the, the rest of the film's like, oh, that's right, that happens. That's, that's good, too. <laughs> this is nice. You know, you <laughs> yeah. just, you're in this place of constant... Um, tension between mm-hmm. losing it completely and enjoying the experience and I think that's the other thing now watching it um, now would be uh, 
way more of a roller coaster than it was ever intended to be. Yeah. And that's art, right? That's what yeah. happens. The, yeah. The, the thing outlives its creator. Mm-hmm. And then another person, and then another person is just... You know, I, I, at this point, I don't know what I would do if I did find myself interviewing Juliet Stevenson. I'd probably just start crying. <laughs> yeah, I suspect. I mean, she's done other great work. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. she's in Breaking and Entering. She plays a therapist, which I found interesting casting. Yeah, I, that, and it does have a really weird. You mentioned book ending, but that does give it a perfect kind of closure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want it to be Nina. I want her to have found another calling and helping people and something. Yeah. But I'm sorry, you were saying no. Just, thing. just no. Absolutely. Uh, I, she, she, um, she, yeah. She was in Bend It Like Beckham, oh. and uh, I actually, I was just reminded, I had seen her on stage in London uh, during my uh, my Ute uh, as uh, in in Burn This, which oh, was a play okay. yes. that she, she did with John Malkovich. That's right. And I didn't see as much theater during my my time living in London as I did film but that was a really powerful play and she was she was terrific in that uh, opposite I mean he was like a white hot flame in that play like he just was chewing things up and <laughs> spitting them out he was just he's so much anger in his character and frustration that uh, she had to react to it a lot but uh, but I remember her being um, at least ma- matching him you know in terms of, of beat by beat so uh so yeah, yeah, uh, she, you know, she's never, I don't think she's ever approached being a star, and maybe that's not something that she's, she's into. Uh, she certainly has the, uh, the chops to have been a, a bigger presence in like Hollywood films if she wanted to go that way, but I, I, yeah. maybe she didn't. I think she's wanted to, I mean, she's done a lot of TV in the UK as well. I think right. she's just happy there. Yeah, and, that makes sense. And she suits the idiom somehow yeah. a lot better. I can't yeah. imagine her affecting an American accent and pretending to be somebody's, you know, visiting aunt in some <laughs> romantic comedy or something yeah no I think you're right I think you're right um, plus how can you see this and not want to give her just work of that caliber yeah that's the thing like <laughs> uh, I suspect she probably still gets asked about this all the time I you know expect. I mean given also that she hasn't done a lot of sort of name above the title kind of roles or just like leading parts in feature films since then um, that makes a lot of sense to me but uh but yeah, so when do you think you're going to watch uh, this film again? <laughs> I don't know. Soon, I think. Uh, I mean, I can feel that I want to. And it's just, I just have to accept that it's going to hurt. Um, and I guess I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with that. I, I'm willing to do it. This is not, this episode was not supposed to be therapy for me. Um, <laughs> but it's weird. Our, our relationship to the things we love is, is obviously always going to be subject to the real world. Things are going to change. Things are going to, you know, uh, Woody Allen gets harder to, to rewatch mm-hmm. with every passing year. Yeah. Mel Gibson's movies are almost impossible to rewatch now. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rowan Polanski is Polanski's, pretty problematic. He's problematic. Guy. Yeah. But you can, I can make a case for those simply from an academic perspective. I mean, the cinema is so good that unless it's something like, well, I mean, then, there, then there's Macbeth where he's working out his trauma and rage, and that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same way that. Braveheart or uh, Payback or any of the any of the later Gibson stuff is fascinating because you're watching him figure out his shit about torture and how much he enjoys being mutilated on camera. He really does. It's his thing. It's yeah. his thing, and it's fascinating. Suffering. He can, wants to suffer. Yeah, he adds stuff where you can suffer more. Um, if he if he where he can suffer more if he wants to, 
And that stuff is fascinating. Truly, Madly Deeply is going to be a different kind of pain because it's really just about watching a bunch of people at their peak who aren't there anymore, and that's going to hurt. Like, I can I can revisit uh, Ripley or The English Patient. Those don't bother me in the mm-hmm. same way. This feels like the pure distillation. I mean, it's like a first novel. He put everything into it. Yeah. This is his shot at a movie, and he got it all in, and he made it beautifully, and it's there to be enjoyed, and so I'm being foolish not to enjoy it, but that's, yeah, I'm going to have to get to that point, and it's going to be, I'm going to ugly cry (laughs) worse than I ever have, I'm pretty sure, right right off the bat, so maybe I have to do it all by myself sometime. I, uh, I, yeah, I get it, I get it, and I I think I'm not uh, part of the cohort that that finds the Harry Potter movies beloved. I, mm. as a fantasy fan, I really enjoy them. I enjoy the books, but I think to myself, uh, people who grew up with Harry Potter and really love those those stories and love the books and have associated Alan Rickman with Snape. Sure. Uh, I wonder how that must be like for them now. I think, well, especially since they're probably very young. Compared to, like, uh, us. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're about the same age. Well, I saw this when I was in my 30s, and, and I'm almost pushing 50 at this point is actually a thing I can say. And I, my relationship to death in my own life is one that I'm, you know, it's established. And it's, it would be, I imagine that watching the Harry Potter movies, you know, starting when you're a kid and finish, I mean, if you grew up with them, you're, that's still 15 years of of span now from when the first one came out and so maybe you're 25 and Alan Rickman dying is a huge I don't know like I don't even know how it works anymore people people seem to be dying so much lately uh <laughs> celebrity deaths were just inundated with them and maybe yeah. that's maybe it's just a function or maybe it's he'll live forever because we have the movies you want, you sort of hope so right yeah. I mean you you hope that that I remember seeing uh um, <clears throat> Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel interviewed on maybe The Tonight Show or maybe Letterman, and uh, have and they they were bickering with each other that, as that as, was their thing. That was their thing, and uh, uh, and Siskel was saying was remarking that watching there was some movie watching that an experience for him which was a little more difficult because some of the one of the actors had died, and uh, and Ebert just like without missing a beat said. What you get depressed watching Casablanca because everyone in it is dead, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, if you thought about it, maybe, maybe, but it's such a ter- just perfect uh, piece of work that that and it and it seems so wonderful that uh, hopefully you get swept up in it in the storytelling anyway, yeah. just the way one always is when watching Casablanca. And I think that's kind of what I, I mean, that, that's usually my default when I write an obit for a film actor. It's like, you know, he's never gone. She's not gone. They're right there on the screen. But I think the context of this film and the fact that Mingella basically died the way Jamie dies, that he, he went in for something and never came out. That's right. Just that's so, right. yeah. And wow. that alone has put me off balance ever since. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Some yeah. stuff is staring you right in the face and you don't even think well, about it. it though, but right? you saying that right now makes me realize you're right. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. And my um and the fact that I kind of, you know, we were friendly, that makes it worse. And then you factor in all the other things. 
it's not like I lost a friend, but I think when any artist dies, you do. Anybody that you, anybody whose work you admire, anybody whose presence gives you comfort the way Rickman did mm-hmm. for 25 years in cinema, 30 almost. I mean, I just loved seeing him, even if it was a bad movie, which that happened. Sure. He's somebody who you can just sort of enjoy because whatever, the, again, whatever the problem is, it's not going to be his fault. Yeah. And yeah. so... That, oh, he did direct a couple of movies. I saw his one with well, that's right. Kate a little, Winslet. A little chaos. Yeah, a little chaos. And there were some really lovely moments in there between his character and Winslet's character, I yeah. thought. No, he yeah. built himself a legacy. I mean, there's, mm. there's absolutely... And I, I don't have a problem watching Die Hard again. <laughs> no. It's just this one. This one has too much <laughs> yeah. feeling in it. And yeah. now and it's, about, it's about death and, yeah. and passing on. So yeah, it's, and now it's, it's, it's loaded right with all that content, that additional context, the things yeah. that it never... Um, that it never meant to hold or maybe it did and it just got lucky mm-hmm. the movie got lucky even though the people in it weren't i i don't know how to no. explain it but it's this perfect storm of meaning mm. that i'm having trouble engaging with again but i will i mean i i love it too much to not even just thinking about it now the last few days replaying it in my head it's like no i don't need to watch it again it's in there but i i kind of want to live in it i want to i want to experience it from you know in real time as it were so i'll i'll get to it <laughs> Jesus! By the time I, by the time this episode comes out, you can assume that I will have watched it because you'll, you know, you'll hear the timbre of my voice change in one episode where I've clearly been crying, and then that's the episode after I watched it. There you go. Uh, but this does bring us to a natural other type of closure, which is the the final question on the podcast: um, What of truly, madly, deeply, if anything, have you borrowed or lifted or stolen or incorporated into your own creative DNA? Well, I'm a I'm a uh, an amateur. Uh, screenwriter, uh, sort of an, as a, on my off. I don't think I've gotten anywhere close to what this story does. Okay. Um, but as as far as it informing my passion for film, um, you know, it, it takes me back to my the origins of passion for film for me. Uh, one of which was my my teenage years in London, where I was loving movies. Uh, that were made there, the Withnal and Eyes and the yeah. and the the uh, Mona Lisas of the world that I was watching and just adoring because I was recognizing like the world it fe- seemed so familiar to me. Um, but also that 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 summer in New York, I where where I was seeing a lot of big blockbuster Hollywood pictures. But this is the one that I insisted my friends watch with me when I when I got back here, and it was a really great reminder that. It's always worth seeking out the lesser-known films, the ones that are a little off the beaten path, the ones that don't have the big budget, because you might come away with something absolutely special that you'll treasure the rest of your life. Yeah. Just, you know, you'll pay for it. <laughs> yeah. You might pay for it. Yeah. You might. You might. It's true. It's a love that hurts. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> yep. My thanks to Karsten Knox, who's back in Halifax writing screenplays as you hear this. You should listen to his podcasts, Flown the Iris and Lends Me Your Ears, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. And you can keep up with him on movies and storytelling at halifaxbloggers.ca slash iris. You can find Karsten on Twitter at Knox Karsten, all one word. And though Truly Madly Deeply is currently out of print, you can find used copies of MGM Home Entertainment's very good DVD release at all the various Amazons. I continue to hope for a remaster or restoration, but to date there's been no news. I also feel I should correct the record slightly. I first saw this movie in my 20s, not my 30s. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. 
As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at SEMCAST, S-E-M-CAST, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It really, really does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.